From Audio Boom comes Covert, a new podcast that delves into the murky world of spies, soldiers, and top secret military operations. I'm Jamie Rennell, and together we'll discover the real stories of history's greatest classified missions, told by the operatives, soldiers, and journalists who experienced it firsthand. Follow Covert on Spotify or subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows. Fifteen seconds. Guidance is internal. Ten, nine, ignition sequence start. Space nuts. Five, four, three, two. One, two, three, four, five, five, four, three, two, one. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello and welcome to Space Nuts. It's the astronomy podcast with Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory and uh, I basically just pretend I know what I'm talking about and ask him a few questions occasionally. My name's Andrew Dunkley. Uh, hello, Fred. <laughs> Good day, Andrew. Look, um, you and I, I think we, I think we, um, we struggle by with the joint effort there. We both make it up as we go along. <laughs> yeah, and it works really well and it's got the entire planet duped. <laughs> well, yes, maybe not the entire planet, but <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. My wife's got me figured out. That's true. Now, um, today we're going to talk about uh, a, a digital map that has been um, put together by astronomers uh, based in Hawaii, and what they've done is darn extraordinary. It's quite an amazing achievement, and and they haven't stopped. There's more to do, but what they've what they've released to date has been. Uh, extraordinary we'll say uh, we'll also talk about the merger of two stars i think last time we talked about a, a, a crash of two galaxies well this is going to be a crash of two stars which is going to be quite spectacular and visible in our skies and a near miss an asteroid passed us by and we didn't know it was there till it was almost too late and it was closer than the moon but uh, first fred uh, what are these um uh, Hawaiian-based astronomers been able to do with uh, with their uh, cameras and, and the mapping of their section of the sky. Uh, it's, I, I guess, um, a great example of um, a realm of astronomy that really wasn't thought about 20 or 30 years ago, um, and that is looking in detail uh, at the universe. In other words, surveying the, the universe with a telescope but at the same time, taking steps that you don't just pick up the stars and galaxies, gas and dust in the universe, you also pick up the transient events, the things that come and go. Um, and that has importance actually uh, relating to the last story that we'll talk about this, this uh, today, this session. Um, let me tell you though what's happening with this biggest star survey. And, and it's got a name that's been very much uh, on the tongues of astronomers uh, for the last four or five years while the survey has been operating, it's called PANSTARS. Uh, and PANSTARS is an, uh, an acronym. Uh, it stands for Panoramic Survey Telescope and Rapid Response System. And what they've done is they've basically photographed, using electronic detectors, of course, the entire sky uh, from Hawaii, because that's where uh, this telescope is situated actually on the island of Maui, not mm. the, the big island of Hawaii, which is where most of the world's great uh, northern hemisphere telescopes are. Uh, so they've, they've photographed the entire sky and they've done it 12 times. Um, and what they've done is they've done it through different colored filters so that you actually get information about the categories of the objects that you're looking at. Um, and so uh, 
last month in December, the end of 2016, uh, they released their first, uh, what we call the first data release, the first results of their survey. And it lists, uh, actually, uh, it's two petabytes of data. Yeah, Uh, I I don't think I've ever heard of a petabyte before. I think a petabyte is a thousand terabytes and a terabyte is a thousand gigabytes. Mm. I think that's that's right, if I remember rightly. it's positions, colors, brightness of uh, actually three billion objects, stars, galaxies, and, and other things too. Um, uh, it's basically been, been operated, as you said, by astronomers in Hawaii. The University of Hawaii have an institute for astronomy. Their headquarters are actually on the big island, uh, sorry, on, on the island of Oahu, which is where Honolulu is. But they, they also have campuses elsewhere and the Panstars campus is right on top of uh, a mountain called Haleakala uh, in uh, the island of Maui. So the great thing about surveys like this is that the information is released. It's not something that people, you know, keep to themselves and don't tell anybody about. It's, it's basically available for all astronomers. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, 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 the resource that you have there allows scientists to do all kinds of uh, interesting work, uh, the kind of thing that, you know, you do with population census surveys, that sort of thing, yeah. looking at the way stars cluster together, the way galaxies appear in clusters, things of that sort, the colors that uh, tell you about the ages of stars and things uh, and the temperatures of stars, all that kind of thing. Um, But what will happen next is that um, throughout this present year, uh, the PanStars team are going to trawl through the data to look at the way things have moved or changed. And that means um, if you've got, you know, novae, which are basically stars that explode, uh, they will be picked up by this process, as will solar system objects like asteroids. Mm. Um, And so PanStars is going to be an asteroid discovery factory as well. Uh, So, um, you know, these basically these uh, these transient phenomena are what the survey is all about. And I I think they've probably already got a fairly large catalogue of those sorts of things. Um, What they're going to do over the next year, I'm sure, is dot the I's and cross the T's. Um, this particular project is is actually the biggest digital mapping survey that has yet taken place. But there are others in the offing, and in particular, there's one coming up. Uh, the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope is a big telescope which is being built as we speak in Chile. It's actually an eight-meter-class telescope, and this will do the same sort of thing, um, uh, making. Uh, making rapid surveys of the entire sky. So you pick up uh, not just the, the galaxies and stars in the sky, but also uh, objects which are changing. And that will also serve as a, as a form of an early warning system, I suppose, because they'll be able to pick up on objects that are rapidly moving and may well be on a potential intercept course with our, uh, with our planet. Is that right? Exactly right. That's mm. right. Yeah. Well, we need that because we're, we going to, we're going to talk shortly about a, a near miss that nobody saw coming. You're listening to Space Nuts uh, with Andrew Dunkley and, of course, Fred Watson. Zero G and I feel fine. Space Nuts. Now, Fred, uh, we're going to talk about a collision in space that's uh, going to happen very, very soon and, and 
when we say very soon, in, we're not talking astronomical terms, we're talking in a few years' time. And this is a collision of, uh, of two stars, and this is going to be uh, a massive event, and it's going to be visible from Earth. Indeed, it would be very bright uh, from from Earth. It will be uh, uh, bright as a, as bright as a second magnitude star, which is um, you know it's uh, up there with the brightest stars that we can see, stars like the Southern Cross and some of the other ones. Um, this is forecast to take place in 2022, and this is a bit of a, a, a unique piece of science because this is the first time uh, anybody has ever predicted what's called uh, a nova. A nova, the word comes from nova stellarum, which means new star. Um, and those are um, basically stars that appear in the sky. Uh, we now understand them a lot better. They're, they're often caused by, um, by uh, you know, a star, a single star doing odd things, but occasionally they're caused by two stars merging together. Uh, but nobody's ever predicted one before. But what we've got now is um, a, an observation uh, of an object picked up actually in the Kepler survey. Kepler was a spacecraft that was specifically looking at stars to find planets going around them. So what it was doing was very accurately measuring the brightness of stars over a period of time. And they found an object uh, <laughs> once again with a glamorous name, KIC 983 uh, This is a Kepler object, which... Um, has all the attributes of what's called a contact binary. That means you've got two stars uh, which are in orbit around each other. That's what a binary is. Mm. But but they are so close that their gaseous envelopes are touching. They're actually touching each other as they orbit. And they're spiralling basically towards one another. I think that's illegal in some countries. Uh, I think it is, yes. It's... It's not illegal for um, that to happen in space. Though. No. Contact binaries are very, very strange objects because what happens is the mutual gravity of the two uh, of the two stars basically pulls their outer envelopes into a very strange lobe shape, mm. um, and um, there's there's a limit. It's called the Roche limit, uh, beyond which they they stop being two objects and actually start becoming one object. Is this the situation that makes them look like a peanut? Uh, exactly. Yes. So that that's if if you could see this uh, this pair of stars close by, they would look just like a peanut, slightly distended peanut, but that's what it would would uh, be. Um, now, th this is where the story gets kind of interesting, Andrew, because um, the the scientists uh, and they're in the USA who have uh, who have been doing this work have made a specific prediction that these two stars will merge in 2022. Mm. Um, and that's a pretty, um, you know, it's a pretty bold statement to make. Yeah, well, I would but, have thought predicting collisions in space at, of far distant objects would be nearly impossible when you consider the, the kinds of actions that are in play out there, the, the gravitational forces, the slowness of the objects. The, yeah. Well, how, how can they be certain? Uh, that's that's right, especially when you've got two ob objects that are so close they're touching and they're spiralling around one another. Mm. At some point, they're going to turn into one object. The reason why they're confident is that there is another star, um, a star actually in the southern constellation of Scorpius. It's called V1309 Scorpii, and the V means variable. That's to say its brightness varies. And that turned into 
Um, basically, uh, a Nova uh, in, I think it was 2008. Uh, and what they were able to do, because there were there were some uh, earlier observations of this thing before it brightened up, and they could see that there were uh, changes in the brightness of this star. This is the one in, Scorpi in Scorpius. Mm. Uh, so they, as they described it, first of all, there were a few booms in the sky, these little pulses of light, and then a spectacular light show unfolded. Um, and so they've, they've got 10 years of data on this object that did turn into a nova uh, around 2008. And what it turns out is that this object that they're now concentrating on, the one they discovered by the Kepler spacecraft, its its light, its performance in terms of its brightness is mimicking exactly ah. what happened to the star in Scorpius. Right. Uh, it's an exact replica. And so what they're doing is they're fitting that light curve uh, and other data um, to uh, to the newly discovered star and making a really good estimate of when it's going to turn into a nova. Um, it's very, very interesting stuff. Uh, the chief scientist who's involved uh, with, uh, with this work, um, his name is Lawrence Molnar, he has said, uh, we don't know if the prediction is right or wrong, but it's the first time we can make a prediction. Uh, at second magnitude, he says, it'll be easy to see if the prediction was correct. You won't need a telescope in 2022 to tell me if I was wrong or I was right. <laughs> yes, so, that's a very yeah. good point. And they refer to this as a red nova as against a supernova. Now, supernova is an exploding star. A red nova is two stars crashing each into each other in these circumstances. That, in these circumstances, that's right. Supernova is uh, when a star reaches the end of its life and detonates in a very spectacular way. And supernovae are millions of times brighter mm. than novae. Um, but a nova is still an interesting object. It's uh, still something that, um, you know, we can learn a lot from by, by observing them. So you can bet your life that this star will be scrutinized to death uh, over, over the next five years to see what it's doing. And, see just, how well it's and just as a matter of interest, once, once this happens, we've got two objects that become one. What, what happens after that? It will. It's almost certainly cocooned in a, in a nebula of dust. There will be... Uh, probably shock waves that will pass through that, which will have their own emissions. Uh, the star will, um, will, we hope, sort of settle down gravitationally. But it, it may well still be pretty unstable. And, and actually, um, you know, we might still get light variations after the NOVA event. Sometimes you get more than one of these things. Uh, so um, what, everything that we can learn about this will add to our understanding of this, uh, of this object. Fantastic. All right. And as you say, put it in your diary. And this is no joke. We will actually see this one. 2022, there's a really good chance, Andrew, that you and I might get to talk about it. Very good. All right. <laughs> You're listening to Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. Three, two, one. Space Nuts. Now, Fred, at the um, beginning of this segment, we talked about digital mapping and looking for things that, that might cause us trouble into the future uh, through that kind of technology, asteroids being a, an obvious uh, issue for us. And in fact, uh, very recently, as in this year, we've had a near miss of uh, an asteroid uh, which sort of passed us by, uh, it was closer than the moon and uh, was moving rather rapidly. And, and they kind of caught sight of this one 
more or less after the fact. It, it, um, you know, it was upon us before we, we could have even con contemplated doing anything about it. Not that we can at the moment, but it happened uh, and it caught everyone off guard. That's right, Andrew. It's, um, you know, the, um, the whole industry, which is what it is now, of uh, discovering near-Earth objects, as they're called, asteroids that might one day present a threat to the Earth. That um, is very much a, a, a process that involves specific telescopes uh, looking at the sky, using the modern technology to check for objects that are moving through the sky, and then very quickly calculating um, you know, whether this is an object that, uh, that, that is, is likely to hit the Earth. That is all done automatically. Uh, there are a number of stars, we, uh, a number of um, um, telescopes which have been doing that. We talked about pan stars uh, a few minutes ago. Uh, there is um, a project uh, which is um, actually also on, on, on Maui that, um, that is specifically looking for uh, near-Earth objects. Uh, these telescopes are basically able to see objects which are now considered relatively small. Um, remember, when it comes to asteroid impacts, it's the big ones that are the dangerous ones. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and the rule of thumb is that something 100 meters across, if it hits the Earth, has the same explosive power as a 100 megaton nuclear weapon. And that's big time stuff. So a 100 meter uh, object, it's kind of football field size, that could wipe out a city uh, easily. Um, now, it's these sorts of objects that, um, you know, the, the, uh, the cameras are looking for, and there are several of them that are, that are tuned to do that. Uh, and one of them, uh, on uh, actually almost the first weekend of, uh, of January, of the first weekend of the year, uh, spotted an object um, passing by the Earth, half the distance of the moon, um, it was basically pretty well at its nearest distance by the time it was seen. It was detected by something called the Catalina Sky Survey, which is actually based uh, near Tucson uh, in Arizona, traveling at 16 kilometers per second, which is typical speed for an asteroid. This one was about 30 meters across. Okay, so, so th that's getting kind of big. It's uh, getting kind of big, that's right. Yeah. Um, it's about twice the size of the object that uh, hit the skies uh, of Russia uh, back in 2013. You probably remember that um, in February 2013, uh, a, a huge fireball appeared above the town of Chelyabinsk, which is in Russia. Uh, it, it exploded uh, with a brightness 30 times the brightness of the sun. It was about 30 kilometers above the Earth when it exploded. Mm, and, um, and thanks to the litigious nature of Russian drivers, uh, we got a lot of footage from dash cams. That's right, all the dashboard cameras. Yeah. And that's how scientists were able to uh, work out its trajectory and um, deduce that this thing came from the main asteroid belt. And it, it uh, caused a lot of damage. It uh, shattered lots of windows. Uh, there were injuries. Uh, thankfully, yes, no deaths. Right. But, it, it, yeah, it, it yeah. gave you a really good insight into in what one of these things could do. So this one's bigger. Yes, that's right. So you're quite right. The Chelyabinsk uh, event, uh, it, because it lit up the sky, uh, it basically had people running to their windows to see what was causing this. Mm. And then a couple of minutes later, the shockwave from the explosion reached the ground 
and smashed many, most of the windows probably in the town. I think 1,200 people wound up in hospital uh, because of that. Um, But as you say, there was no loss of life. Uh, And bits of the object were recovered because uh, some of it made it down to earth. Some of it landed actually in a frozen lake nearby. Mm. Um, Yes, this object uh, seen at the beginning of January this year is bigger than that. Uh, It is likely to have... Uh, done rather more damage if it hit the earth. Um, we, however, I think can take uh, some solace from this story. Uh, and the solace is that, yes, it was detected, even though it was almost upon us when it was detected, um, it, it was found. And that is something that 30 years ago wouldn't have happened, even though these things were whizzing by us in space uh, 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 at the same rate as they are now back mm. then. So if, if it, let's just say this was the one that um, hit Earth and exploded over Chelyabinsk, uh, Chelyabinsk, what would have happened to the town then? I think it would have done much more damage. The, um, it, look, it depends on um, the structure of the asteroid as to whether it explodes in the atmosphere. In other words, the forces that are generated when uh, when it, it it's uh, superheated through its passage through the atmosphere, if those forces are enough to overcome the structural integrity of the object, then it'll blow itself to pieces, as did the Chelyabinsk uh, object. And um, then you get a fireball uh, in the atmosphere. Now, we've got a, a model for what happens with that, um, actually for a much larger object, probably something 50 to 70 metres across, and that is the Tunguska event. Yes. And this is uh, something that happened in 1908 over the, over the Siberian forest that basically flattened trees uh, for something like 2,000 square kilometres. That was a bigger object than the one we've just missed, uh, but um, the you know the bottom line is that it's somewhere between those two extremes. Uh, if you imagine uh, a 35 or 30 meter object, that's probably going to cause an explosion. That if it happened over a city, would do significant damage mm. and probably cause significant loss of life. They yes. tend to compare these things with uh, the bombs that were dropped at the end of World War II over um, Nagasaki and. Uh, Hiroshima. That, that's correct. And that's about the sort of level. And yeah. they're suggesting this one was like, or if it had hit the the planet, would have been a hundred times more powerful. No, not a hundred times more powerful, but much, much more powerful than Nagasaki. Yes, that's correct. And that's, um, you know, that's um, uh, basically because um, uh, uh, b- b- because of the mass of the object. What 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 it's all about, Andrew, is what we call the kinetic energy. Um, this particular um, one over Chelyabinsk came in at uh, at uh, th- about 30 kilometres per second, um, and that's very typical. And it's that that velocity that actually um, imparts the energy that you can measure in megatons or kilotons. Mm. Um, so this particular asteroid, you're quite right. Uh, it, it suggested that it might be 30 times more than the Nagasaki bomb in terms of its explosive power. Wow. So, it's um, yeah, it's a significant event, absolutely. Yeah, it's pretty scary, but uh, we're, we're getting better at finding these things. This one sort of got too close too soon before we spotted it. But, yeah, as you say, we did spot it. So that's that's a plus. It is a plus, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It is a plus. But, um, just to, uh, as a footnote to that, there was... Um, uh, uh, basically a, a, a White House document that um, was produced at the end of last year, which is a really good up-to-date summary of where we're at 
with um, with the discovery of these near Earth objects and you know what facilities are are in place to do the detection. Uh, I, I do believe, as I said, it's a good news story. We <clears throat> we were in blissful ignorance of all this only a few decades ago. Yeah, well, for hundreds and hundreds of years we yeah. stood around on this planet not even knowing that this was a possibility. <clears throat> so, I guess that's just blind luck. But um, here we are now in a position where, well, ultimately we might be able to do something about it one day. Exactly, that's yeah. right. Or at least prepare and say, okay, we need to evacuate all of southeastern Australia. <laughs> Start moving now. <laughs> Better get moving now. That's right. It's um, yeah. I mean, that would be the last. You know, the last ditch response is um, is civil defence measures. Yeah. Um, th- th- there has been an argument mounted that um, there should be a spacecraft that is actually ready uh, to tackle this problem because. It takes typically five years to get a space mission ready. Mm. Um, and you, you might not have that length of time uh, if you do, do discover something that, uh, that, is, uh, that has a big threat. At the moment, by the way, all known asteroids uh, taken together, there is no significant threat for the next 100 years. So Yeah, it's the ones we don't know about. It's the ones we don't know about. That's but we'll correct. keep an eye out for them. Fred, as always, a great pleasure. Thanks again. You're welcome, Andrew. Good to talk to you, and we'll speak again soon. That's Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory, wrapping up another edition of Space Nuts. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook. Uh, tell your friends about us. Don't forget to review us on iTunes. That that helps to um, find us more people or more people to find us, whichever way it goes. And uh, you can also listen to Stuart Gary uh, uh, pre- presenting a sister um, podcast uh, of an astronomical feel um, called Space Time. You can catch up with him as well. Uh, until next time, thanks for listening to Space Nuts. Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes, Audioboom and Stitcher or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Sites.com. Welcome to Mafia, a new podcast telling stories of America's criminal underworld. Gotti assumed the position of head of the Gambino family. And using the name Donnie Brasco, I was able to infiltrate the uh, Bonanno uh, crime family in New York City. Bugsy Siegel is an American mob legend. One man changed the whole texture and landscape of crime in America. Listen to Mafia every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows.